Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Now, here are your hosts of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, Andrew Olson and Roy Jones. Hi, this is Andrew Olson. Before we get into today's episode, I want to talk to you leader to leader about something important. As leaders, especially at times of rapid change and uncertainty, it's easy to live and act from a place of fear. If we're not careful, that fear can paralyze us and keep us from effectively leading at work, at home, and in every relationship. But that doesn't have to be the case. My friend Ben Straub, founder of Velocity Strategy Solutions, a growth architecture firm that helps leaders and organizations accelerate revenue and maximize impact through data-driven strategies, has just released a great new resource for leaders. It's called Eight Things Leaders Say When They Fear Change and How to Confront Those Fears. This five-page resource gives you eight of the most frequent responses we as leaders have when we experience fear and the specific steps and language that you can use to move beyond fear to action. Click the link in the episode show notes to get this resource today. You'll be a better leader tomorrow because of it. Hey, this is Andrew Olson with the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, and I'm really excited to be here today with Trevor Bragdon, the founder of Seven Figure Fundraising. Hey, Trevor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. And look, really looking forward to hearing from you and, and having our listeners learn how to craft a great pitch for five, six, and seven figure donor asks. Before we get into that, if you could take a minute, tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, why you founded Seven Figure Fundraising, and what the firm is. Sure. Well, appreciate you having me on the show, Andrew. I've been a big fan of the podcast and I think you guys are doing great work. Uh, we started Seven Figure Fundraising in 2016, and I founded it with my brother, Taryn Bragdon. He's the co-founder, or he founded a nonprofit called the Foundation for Government Accountability um, back in 2011 and grew that from $50,000 in seed money to now raising $14 million a year. And we were talking one day, um, my background is in consulting and political campaigns. And then I studied behavioral science, which is basically the study of how people make decisions and take action. And we we're having this conversation one day where we we're talking about some of my clients were nonprofits and were struggling to raise money. And he had had this success growing this brand new nonprofit. And we're like, well, what is it about fundraising that makes it difficult to teach and difficult to learn. And I think a lot of probably listeners had this experience where they were really good at, you know, some technical aspect of the nonprofit they worked for. The CEO retires, the executive director retires or steps down, they get promoted. And it's like, you're going to do this job and then you just need to learn fundraising. And <laughs> we're fundraising this whole skill set. Yeah. This whole skill set that, you know, it's a lot of work to learn and, it's a little bit of a black box because if you weren't involved in it and you've been promoted, it's really difficult. So we together, we looked at this and said, well, I bet we can come up with a way to teach this and really unpack how do you understand major donor fundraising and how do you make it so that you're not spending all of your time fundraising, but you're able to prioritize to not just get the work done, but also fund it well. Let's, let's talk a little bit about sort of the framework that you designed for, for this program. And, you know, given your background and given your, your brother's experience, you know, you guys have now come to a place where you're doing, uh, it sounds like live trainings for, for nonprofit organizations around how to craft that fundraising pitch. Like that, that's different than I see in a lot of organizations, a lot of consulting firms where they're like, we're going to teach you the 12 steps to, developing a major gift program or the, you know, 27 things you need to know about how to run a major gift team, blah, 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 whatever it might be. You guys have honed in on a really specific place. It sounds like within that major gift strategy, talk a little bit about why, why you feel that's the most important piece to know. Well, I think one of the challenges with fundraising is a lot of nonprofits are doing great work but have trouble expressing and talking about it in a really compelling way. And when we think about major donors, they usually are self-made, have a lot of wealth, usually from being entrepreneurs or starting their own business or some sort of um, wealth creation. And they get pitched every single day. They get pitched on business deals, on partnerships, all these things. And they're pitched at a really high level. 
But as nonprofits, people come in and you might pitch and prepare for talking with this donor by writing out a few bullet points on a note card or kind of thinking through like as you're driving to the meeting. And you think about the contrast as you're going into this meeting and you know, maybe the person, the two meetings before you, they're pitching for a multi-million dollar deal or some sort of partnership. And then you get in there and you're kind of laying out some points, talking about the good work you're doing, but not in a really tight, compelling way. So the contrast there is what we want to help you avoid. So you have a really tight pitch that's almost on the same level as what you'd be doing if you're like pitching for venture capital or some really big investment. Okay. That makes a ton of sense. And I think it's different than anything I've ever heard a fundraising consultant or trainer talk about, right? A lot of people talk about the ask, but it's never framed up in that construct, which I think is a really interesting and unique perspective. You and I were talking offline about this earlier. And one of the things that I thought was particularly interesting is the, the, storytelling process that you weave into this. Can you talk a little bit about how that works uh, within the context of, of this kind of ask structure? Sure. Um, I think we all know stories are really important and like they help drive narrative, right? We all remember stories. Like usually if you're talking with somebody, like you tell them about, um, you know, a meeting or something you have, you'll relay some sort of story about it. Right. So it's how we as humans tend to convey information. But when you think about, like, why does a donor give money? Like, if you think about one of your top donors, why are they giving to your organization? And you usually breaks down to three big categories. They're giving because of people, either you as, like, the founder or leader of the organization or the people you're helping serve, uh, or they give because of your mission and your vision, or they give because of your execution or some combination of those three things. So if you're designing a pitch and you know that donors respond to people, vision and mission and execution, you wanna incorporate all those three things. So what you wanna do when you're designing a pitch is talk first or not first, but talk about people and you do that through stories. And then you wanna talk about your vision and make a connection to the work you're doing to that vision and mission. And then finally, you wanna talk about your plans on how you're going to execute that vision. So you wanna talk about what you're working on today, like what you're doing today, but also your plans for the future. So it's not like that just telling a bunch of great stories, you know, that's good and that's great because um, you can convey a lot of information, but you also have to back that up with plans and execution because you need both there, particularly when you're talking with super successful people who have made a lot of money and have done a lot of big things. Like they're not going to just get pulled in with an emotional pitch. They're going to want to see the backup of how you actually plan to get this done. So to answer your question, that was a long answer to your question, but we find that stories play a really compelling role with um, two particular areas. One is the whole idea of, when somebody says yes to a pitch and this doesn't this it can work for a sales pitch or a fundraising pitch is people tend to buy on emotion and then they justify with logic and facts so if you have a mix of both emotion and logic in your pitch you're giving them uh, something to both you know buy with but then also justify their purchase with um, and it's also giving them the confidence that you know what you're doing. So we talk about in our pitch framework, you know, there's a couple different types of stories you like to incorporate uh, into your pitch, you know, stories of your origin, stories of need, like who you're serving, stories of hope, um, and then success stories. Those are the big four. And sometimes you can even incorporate a story of overcoming failure. Um, so there's five big categories, but the big ones are success stories, um, stories of your origin, and stories of people in need. So, so let's stay on this topic for a second because I, I suspect there are some fundraisers listening who are thinking to themselves, well, wait a minute, I have 30 minutes with a donor. How do I fit all of those stories into that 30 minutes in a way that, that moves the needle and gets me to the point where I can make an ask, right? Talk a little bit about, I guess, first of all, are you suggesting that all of that gets packed into one conversation or is this more a narrative that gets thread over time and, and then... In addition to that, like, what's the 
I guess, what are the steps that go into that to, to prepare an organization or a, or a particular fundraiser to, to lay that narrative out in a, in a compelling way for the donor? Sure. Uh, great question, Andrew. So how we view, like, say, a 30-minute meeting, and this is what, you know, Taryn does with all his six- and seven-figure donor meetings, is you look at it and break it up into basically thirds, right? You have about five to ten minutes you spend on small talk. And then you want to transition into your pitch. And remember, these are successful people who are used to being pitched. So it's as long as you seamlessly make that transition, uh, they're going to respond and listen to your pitch. Now, it doesn't mean they're not going to interrupt you because obviously they're used to doing that too. Um, they'll ask you questions. But what we suggest is having basically a six to nine minute pitch that's pretty tight, like written out, that you've practiced, and that you've gone through. And then after your pitch is done, you end with an ask and then you go into a Q&A where it goes back and forth. And, you know, always when you end with an ask, ask for the amount of money and then you stop talking and just wait. But it's usually that six to eight minute uh, pitch is what we recommend. And how we recommend transitioning is, you know, you go into your small talk, finding out about their kids, their family, those sort of things. And then you say, I'm glad you're meeting with me today. I want to be really respectful of your time. And I just want to take the next seven minutes and explain or and tell you about the fascinating things we're working on this year or it's exciting things we're working on this year. And what you're signaling there is I'm going to go monologue for a little bit and I'm going to pitch you. And then you go into your pitch. And in the workshop and when we help people with their pitches, what we do is we walk them through a template where they first, you kind of write out some bullet points, get your general ideas down for the pitch, and then you start filling in the detail, adding another layer of bullets, adding, writing out the actual words. And what we find is when you actually go through this process and write out what you want to say, you realize like, hmm, like this first section, how I'm introducing myself, isn't that compelling? I should tighten this up. And then, you know, you might realize like, I need to end on a more powerful close. And you kind of work on that. But it's this iterative process of writing it, trying it out, saying it, speaking the words, you know, either recording yourself ideally and watching yourself, which is, you know, we were talking about this before the start. It's so painful to uh, put yourself on video or audio. Um, but going through an iterative process where you try it out, you know, watch it, refine it, make it better. Um, it can, you can really have a powerful, tight six to eight minute pitch and you can tell two or three really compelling stories in that time because a story, I think what we confuse is like stories have to be this long, like Hollywood production. No, you can tell a story in a minute. There's some great resources on storytelling, uh, that's available from like NPR's website and these different, like this American life, they have this whole resource on there on how do you make great stories. One of the things we talk about in our workshop is this thing called the story litmus test. And that's something um, Alex Bloomberg used to be on uh, This American Life and then founded Gimlet, uh, which is a podcast company. And he talks about this thing called the story litmus test, which is I'm telling a story about X and it's interesting because of Y. And so they use this example when he's telling it about they were doing this story on aircraft carriers. And aircraft carriers have, I think it's like four or 5,000 people who help run this, you know, big nuclear powered ship. And so they started out by saying, I'm doing a story about aircraft carriers. And it's interesting because they have four or 5,000 people. And like, that's not actually that interesting. You wouldn't listen to the radio for that. Sure. Um, so they kept refining it and going through and they ended up with saying, I'm telling a story about aircraft carriers and it's interesting because they're run by teenagers mm. because the average age on an aircraft carrier was like 19 and a half or something like that. So like, I want to listen to that. Like I'd probably stop in my car to hear the end of that. Cause sure. Most of us can't get teenagers to, you know, clean their room, but yet they're running a nuclear ship. Yeah. <laughs> Let know? alone run a floating city for sure. Right. So like going through those processes with a story is like, okay, how do I make this really compelling? So it grabs the uh, listener, you know, grabs the donor and it makes it really sticky. And I think the other thing, we talked about this a little bit, but with a donor, they're usually not making their decision right then. You know, they're going to talk to a spouse, a, you know, a handler, someone else, an advisor. And so by giving them really compelling stories, you're giving them the currency 
to share your pitch with somebody else. Again, going back to like, we remember stories really well. So if you have a compelling story, they can repeat it. They might not get all the details correct, but they'll be directionally accurate and it'll give them something to talk about. Like, you know, I met with Andrew, you know, how'd your meeting with Andrew goes? Well, great. He told me this story about, you know, something interesting. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Given that you just sort of talked about how, you know, storytelling allows us to then carry that message elsewhere. I do want to get a little bit of insight from you. I mean, this sounds like it makes a ton of sense for a face-to-face ask, right? For a Mm -hmm. a one-on-one kind of meeting. Have your clients and the nonprofits that you work with successfully adapted this kind of framework for special events, for for other kinds of fundraising asks, or is it really just about that face-to-face ask? Well, what's interesting about it is when you have a pitch and you've worked on it and practiced it for several hours, is you can use snippets of the pitch in all sorts of both spoken, you know, events like people have used it when talking with their board members, they've used it when they've like had to give a you know, quick speech about, you know, what do you do with your organization? And they slip into giving a part of their pitch because they've practiced it so much. But what's interesting, and I know we're going to get to it in a minute, um, we created this pitch to address the COVID crisis. And, you know, we designed that for people to use via Zoom calls, phone calls, and if they had an in-person meeting, which we thought would be rare. What was interesting, we had a national group who used it and used the pitch template to write their house file letter that they were sending out. So they had a letter that was going out. We did this uh, webinar where we went through the steps of it. And they're like, well, actually, we should tell the story this way and tell, you know, explain it to our donors this way. So they stopped their printing of it, sent it out, and it was one of their best producing letters ever. Wow. So it's one of these things like having a compelling pitch gives you a lot of different ways to use it. You can use it in direct mail. You can use it over the phone. You can use it giving a quick speech. Um, And when you know it really well, like, you know, we've all memorized different things. When you know it really well, you can grab a part and just say it. You know, you don't have to give the whole, you know, six or eight minutes, but you can grab a snippet that really captures, you know, what point you're trying to drive home. That's great. All right. So let's jump into this, this other concept that you're talking about, this pitch for navigating uncertain times. Talk to us a little bit more about that. Just walk us through that that framework. Sure. So I started thinking, you know, in early or mid-February that this COVID crisis is going to be a problem. My wife's a nurse practitioner. She's been in the last few months treating COVID patients. Um, At that point, she hadn't, but had been following it really closely. And it really seemed like this is going to change a lot of things. So we really started looking at you know, how do we make a pitch that's compelling to donors and that talks about all of the different things that have had to change with nonprofits? And if you think about it from the donor's perspective, what do they want to know coming out of the COVID crisis about your nonprofit? Usually it's how you've adapted and what stayed the same for you. So kind of thinking about those two things. So what we did is designed a pitch um, template that addresses those two big questions of what stayed the same and what's changed. And we base this on this story arc that you see in a lot of movies called the Voyage in Return story arc. And this is in movies like Castaway with Tom Hanks is an example of this, Um, Finding Nemo, the Pixar movie with the fish. Um, And then like even kids books have a lot of Voyage in Return. book my kids like uh, Where the Wild Things Grow. Um, I think I have that. I might have the title wrong there, but the one with the monsters. Uh, Those are all voyage and return stories. And what makes a voyage and return story is this, is the hero gets thrown into a world not by their own choosing. So they all got thrown into this COVID crisis and they have to like orient themselves to this new world, take stock of what they have, and then start building a plan to get home. And so then they, through trials and challenges, you know, they become usually a better person that grows them and expands their skill set and their character. And then at the end of the movie, they make it home. And we wanted to follow an existing story arc that's used a lot in Western literature because it seems familiar. And this is like one of those kind of subtle things, but if a donor is listening to your story and they can kind of follow along, they feel comfortable and 
it feels more believable and it just resonates better. It's like why we don't mind watching Law and Order reruns. They all, they're very formulaic show, but you know, we know there's going to be a courtroom scene. You know, we know all these different aspects. The bad guy's going to get arrested. There'll be resolution at the end of whatever it is, 43 minutes. You have a camera uh, in my house. You know that we watch Law and Order reruns all the time. Is that the case? <laughs> yeah, I did not. I didn't know that, but uh, <laughs> it's true. Like the office is the same way. You know, so if you follow kind of these, general story arcs, it helps appeal to that. So the steps of this are, you start with thanking the donor. And you want to thank them for their previous support and just thank them because, you know, most of uh, the nonprofits wouldn't exist without our donors. So start out by thanking them. And then you want to talk about how the last time we met, our plans were this. And you just talk about, you know, some of the stuff that you'd plan to do. And then you go into, but a lot's changed since then. And here's what stayed the same for us. And here's what's changed. So it's kind of if a way to think about it is you're, you know, if you're a ship at sail, you know, the ship itself stayed the same, but you might've changed your, um, tacked your sails a little bit. And so you want to talk a little bit about that because what you're doing here is you're being really honest about the reality of today, like in a hopeful way. I think a, like a good example of this, it comes from the book, Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. Mm-hmm. He talks about the Stockdale paradox. And James Stockdale was this prisoner of war in Vietnam. And he interviewed him for the book. And he asked him, you know, how did you stay positive when you were seven and a half years a prisoner and four years in solitary confinement? And he said how he never lost hope that he would get out in the end but was really brutal about the facts of today. So that's the Stockdale paradox, this kind of tension between being really honest about what's today, you know, going on today, but also hopeful for the future. So you want to do that. I mean, and, you know, you don't want to like bear all your sins or any of that <laughs> in the, uh, when you're talking to the donor, but you want to be realistic. Like, you know, there's this element of, I think, loss and sadness we all had, because we all had a lot of plans for, especially, you know, the second and third quarter of this year that are kind of up in smoke. Um, So just really addressing that out of the gate, but in a positive way. And then you want to transition and talk about, but you know, through this crisis, here's what we've learned. And you want to talk about what you've learned about your mission. Because I think we've all learned something really deep about our mission and why we do the work we do. And there's usually some pretty deep insight there. And then you've usually learned something about the people you serve and your staff. And you want to talk about, so that's a great place to put in some stories. We had this one nonprofit, uh, it's a faith-based nonprofit, and they operate in Haiti. And he was using this pitch, and he talked about how they were really worried about, they used to work with churches in Haiti, and they were really worried about the churches there because of COVID, they couldn't meet. And they also don't have internet there. So what are they going to do? It's not like in America where they just live stream the churches or the services. And what these pastors ended up doing was using WhatsApp, which is a texting app used all around the world, recording their messages and then texting them out to their congregation. And then their congregation shared it. And they actually were reaching way more people than if they'd been yet in person like they normally did. (laughs) So that was like what they'd learned about the people they served. And that's a story that, you know, you tell your donor and who's really into your work and they can share that with their spouse or somebody else. So you want to do that. And then after you've talked about, so you've talked about your mission, the people you serve, and then your staff, some interesting stories there. Then you want to transition, like, how do you get home? What's our way forward? And that's where we talk about this concept of call waypoints. Like, you know, when you're navigating through, you know, and you don't quite know where you're going, you tend to um, rely on landmarks. So what you want to do is like, no, we have two big goals for getting through this crisis. And you want your first goal to be representative of something to your existing mission. You know, something that's really important to your existing mission that you would have been doing anyway, because this whole thing is not about, you know, we're not throwing out our business models and changing everything. I mean, I'm sure there's a couple nonprofits for most of us, you're adapting some parts of it. And then your second goal is something you've changed or adapted because of the COVID crisis. So again, it's that tension between what stayed the same and what's changed. 
And then you close out with a hopeful end where, you know, where you want to talk with your donors about, you know, we're going to get through this crisis, but because of it, we're going to be stronger and better and have learned new things about us and the people we serve. And then you do your ask. Or if it's just an update, you just, you know, close by thanking them again for their donation. But it's a pretty simple formula to follow, but it gives you a way to convey a lot of information in a quick period of time. Yeah, I, I love this. I think I, I wish more organizations knew how to do this six weeks ago, right? Yeah. Um, but I think it's a great tool and a great framework for organizations to think about as they're crafting their asks or their updates. That makes a lot of sense. I know one of the other things that I wanted to ask you in some of the literature that you guys put out, you, you talk about three levers of fundraising growth. So talk to us a little bit about what those are and how organizations can use those to maximize their impact. Great. Well, I think one of the challenges with trying to grow fundraising is where do you start, right? Like <laughs> we need to increase our fundraising. Do you do direct mail? Do you ask more major donors? Do you start an online campaign? Like there's a million different tactics out there, but what we found it's really difficult is just trying to figure out where to start. So we came up with this framework called the three levers of fundraising growth. And it turns out these are, this is actually taken from the business world. These are the same three levers of growth of any sort of organization, um, but they're adapted for the nonprofit world. So lever number one is increasing your average donation. So that's moving up major donors and increasing their donation. And you can do that with having a really compelling pitch. So if you think about this, the easiest money to like new money to get is by increasing existing donors. They're already bought in. They believe in the people. They believe in your mission and vision. They believe in your execution and you're giving them a really compelling way of talking about your future and why you need increased donations. So that's lever number one, increasing your average donation. And then lever number two is increasing your donor consistency. And that's, you know, a lot of us talk about retention. This is retention. So for smaller donors, you know, if they're direct mail or giving online, that's increasing the frequency, you know, how often they give. But for major donors, we find most major donors give about once a year. So what we say with lever number two on increasing consistency is timing your ask to when the donors like to give. Not when you like to travel, <laughs> when the donors like to give. Um, because people who are wealthy and have lots of resources, they tend to make decisions on an annual basis. And it just, you know, they might have some sort of dividend that's paid out or, you know, end of the year might be their time. Some people it's in the middle of the summer. Like it just depends. And so really timing that. So you're, if you know their check comes in, say in August, you're asking them six or eight weeks before that. Um, so so that, let me stop you right there for a second. When you say six to eight weeks, is that sort of an approximate suggestion or have you guys tested that and you know that like that happens to be the sweet spot? Um, that's an approximate. Like if okay. you know they make decisions quickly and send out checks, you can tighten that up. Um, but the good thing about when you think about it from the individual donor perspective is you can schedule your donor meetings really far in advance. Mm -hmm. So if you know, you know, John Smith, He's one of our top 20 donors and he gives every year in August. You can schedule a meeting in July, but you can schedule it in February. Sure. Because these are really wealthy people. They have highly managed lives. Like it's not weird for them to you know, schedule a meeting six months in advance or four months in advance. Whereas you or I, you know, like our account, unless we have vacations blocked out, you know, it's pretty clear, you know, besides a little bit of travel right. six months in advance. So, um, oh, go ahead. Just one other good thing about once you're on the calendar, if something changes, you usually stay on the calendar. Sure. It's a reschedule rather than right. a, a, a removal. So in that scenario, and I, I agree with you, I think this makes, this is perfect. What do you say to the, to the executive director or the board that says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that they have times they like to give, but our fiscal year end is at X date and we really need to generate more revenue before that. Talk about the push-pull around that. Sure. Well, I think one of the things to think about is how do you like to be treated as a donor, right? Like mm -hmm. good fundraisers or people who are good at fundraising are also mm -hmm. givers. 
typically because it's hard to be good at fundraising if you don't give yourself. So think about like if you just gave say a thousand dollar check to you know the Humane Society in your town or something like that, and then the next week you get you know an email from them asking you to give ten bucks. That's annoying because you're like I just gave you a thousand, or you get a phone call <laughs> asking for another hundred dollars. You're like, well, I just gave you a thousand dollars. Isn't that enough? And you're like, can you give me a break for a few minutes? <laughs> you know, but we do that all the time with major donors. You know, they might write a $25,000 check in July. And then in November, we're hounding them for a $5,000 table sponsorship. Like, really? Like maybe you should give them the table sponsorship and ask them to invite several of their wealthy friends that they think would be interested in being donors to your organization. Yeah, it's a great point. All right. So what's the third part of this framework? Yep. So the third lever is increasing the number of donors, but this is the lever we usually turn to first and it's the lever you should go to last because you think about- Wait a about, minute. Wait a minute. Say that again because okay. I want that to stick for people. <laughs> so lever number three, increase the number of donors. This is what we always go to first. Like what do we do when you're sitting around your board? We need to find new donors. But what we forget about is- a, your close rate is much lower with new people because A, they don't know about you. They haven't bought in, all these different things. And you're going to spend a lot more time setting up meetings with these new donors. And you're just going to close, even when you get the meeting, you're going to close a much lower percent than you would of your existing donors. So we say do this lever last because it's usually not a significant amount of money that you bring in with new money. You can increase your donations much larger from existing donors and from tightening up your frequency or the retention. One of the interesting things with lever two, that increasing donor con uh, consistency is this whole concept of it's really hard for us to get our heads around retention. You know, like what does an average retention mean, right? Like in the nonprofit industry, it's about 50, 51% of nonprofit or of donors retain from year to year. That's like industry average. So if you think about that, like what does that mean if you had 100 donors giving to you this year? Well, in year two, that's 50. Year three, it's 25. And by year eight, you're down to a single donor by having a 50% retention. So if you can move that up to like 60, 70, 80% retention by treating your donors better, focusing on them, like having a real relationship you have so much more money coming in because these are people who are already bought in. They're just not falling off. That's, that's good stuff. And I, I wish that more in our space would talk about this. You know, it's, it's a little counterintuitive because uh, most of my business is direct response and mm -hmm. we're usually the, the, the group of people saying more acquisition, more acquisition, more acquisition, sure. but I, I'm right there with you. I, I do wish so many more organizations would say, wait a minute, let's invest a third, half, who knows how much of our acquisition budget into keeping the donors we already have because we already work so stinking hard to get them. And we right. spent so much in you know, labor and, and hard costs and all that, you know, all else to, to build a relationship. Why not focus there first? Right. Well, in looking at your acquisition streams, right? Like where are you retaining? You know, like you might find you have a certain letter or a certain event where your retention is really high. Do more of that. Like, and then you find some other strategies where your retention's really low, do less of that. You know, like don't make it some universal number, look at it by strategy because yeah. a lot of direct response has, you know, really good retention rates. Um, so just figuring out what's working with your unique nonprofit. Yeah, for sure. That makes a lot of sense. So one of the other things that I was interested in, you, you talk in some of your training materials about the best way to set up a development shop. So connect that thinking for me to everything else that we've talked about and talk a little bit about what that sort of best case scenario looks like. Sure. So this is probably like one of the, um, I wouldn't say controversial, but one of the more different aspects of our training versus a lot of development training is what we've done is look at this from a, you know, how would we set up a for-profit organization, like a sales organization? So everyone just stop listening for a second, just, just to be clear. <laughs> Go ahead though. Right. But you think about like, we're in sales, you're selling, it's a lot like business to business sales dealing with major donors. Yeah. Think about how those people are sold all the time. They're sold by business to business sales executives and salesmen. That's how they buy. 
So if you want to be like them, you have to adopt some of their practices. Um, so one of the ways to look at this is, you know, traditionally we have the hierarchy, you know, the pyramid structure where you have, you know, your CEOs on top, they're responsible for the major donors, they're responsible for talking to new donors and the follow-up and those sort of things. You might have an administrative assistant or other people who help with that. And then you have your junior level fundraisers, and then you have, you know, your lowest tier, you know, say responsible for, you know, your smallest donors, right? What we recommend doing is setting this up by role, not by donor size. So we have, and you think of it more like a funnel, right? With coming in. So you have a person who's only responsible for prospecting new major donors. So we call that role a connector. So they're responsible for new major donors. And then you have somebody who's only responsible for closing, meeting one-on-one -on -one with the donors, pitching them and closing them. And that person we call a closer. That's usually your CEO, your development director, those sort of people who meet one-on-one -on -one with donors. And the reason we split up these roles is because usually you're good at one or two things. You're not good at a lot of things, right? People who are really good at closing donations and getting on airplanes to meet with donors are usually bad at follow through. <laughs> Yes, yes, we are. <laughs> and, yeah, because you're like, you're on the airplane. Like, think about how all the work it goes to setting up a new donor meeting with someone you've never met with. There's a lot of back and forth, all these things. There's so many places to drop the ball when you have people getting on airplanes, you know, have chunks of time eaten up. Like, it's really hard to do. If you have someone who doesn't get on airplanes, who's just focused on setting up the meetings for your closer, like, that's a much more efficient system. And then the third role is more like in the sales world, it'd be an account manager. We call it a cultivator, but they're focused on creating a really high, customer, high level of donor experience for your donors once they've given. So, so, so they're your retention expert, really. Exactly. Okay. And you see this actually lines up with the three levers of growth. So number, lever number one, increasing the average donate, or donation of, from your donors, that's your closer's job. If they have a good pitch, they connect well with the donors, they can increase their donations as long as your organization is doing the work and you know, you're doing all the things you're saying you're doing. Lever number two, which was increasing donor consistency, that comes from the cultivator, this person who's only focused on creating a really high level of customer experience for your donors. So you think about like if you only have one person focusing on that, they can really get to know the donor well know their quirks and like these different um, personality things. Like, you know, they might know that there's some big event coming up with the donor's life, like um, some big milestone, they can send them a special note. These sort of things that, you know, closers getting on airplanes all the time isn't going to be as good at. And then lever number three, which is finding new donors. You have someone who's working on that, who is only job is to find new major donors and set up meetings. And we find those major donors typically come from either, you know, warm leads like referrals or, you know, people that the CEO or the, you know, development directors met in person, like a consistent following up with those people to schedule a meeting or like cold leads where they reach out to people that they think should be interested in the organization, but may not have heard of you yet. So when you're talking about that connector, you're, you know, I think a lot of organizations say, oh yeah, we have somebody that does that. They find new major donor prospects for us. They're a prospect researcher. That doesn't sound like what you're talking about here. Is that correct? Correct. Well, they do research, that's for sure. But it's, they will email, reach out to the person and say, you know, hi, I'm Trevor. I'm, you know, I'd love to have you set up a meeting with our CEO, talk about the great work we're doing at XYZ nonprofit. And they're trying to facilitate a meeting. And that's, follows a lot like a prospector does in the sales world is you have to send a lot of emails, you have to follow up and have some sort of system in place, and you have to be willing to deal with a lot of rejection. Because you think about like if you're targeting major donors, people who can give, you know, five, six and seven figure donations, like they have a lot of gatekeepers, they're busy, lots of people are asking for money. So you need someone who's really persistent. But one of the big things too to think about with the connector and like that prospecting role is thinking about going after donors who, you know, depending on your size of your organization, but their first check could be a five figure or a six figure donation. 
So the number of donors you might target is a lot smaller, but if you only get a couple who say yes, the impact is much larger. Sure. So really thinking, yeah, it could make your year. It's like the 80-20 principle, you know, like 20% of donors give 80% of the funds. It's actually probably a little more concentrated than even that uh, these days. Um, But really just thinking about like, do I want to go after 20 people or do I want to go after 10 really key people who could write $100,000 checks and we get four meetings I close one of the, you know, my closer closes one of those four meetings and we get $100,000 in new revenue by targeting 10 people or 15 people or whatever the number is. Yeah. So staying on this for a while, this structure is dramatically different from what I've seen in, uh, well, I've I've consulted with about a thousand organizations in my career. Mm -hmm. I've, I've never seen a structure like this. So talk to me a little bit about the change management process that has to happen for an organization to actually successfully migrate from what typically would be either a a programmatic structure or sort of a channel specific structure uh, in their Mm -hmm. shop. How does an organization navigate this change? Sure. That's a great question, Andrew. So this comes from, um, this was based on this book called Predictable Revenue by Andrew Ross and I think it's Mary Lou Taylor. Um, and Andrew Ross was the head of sale business development for Salesforce okay. um, as they grew from 10 million to hundred million in revenue. And this is like how they built out their sales team. So at my brother's organization, the center, uh, the foundation for government accountability, his C COO had read that book and said, you know, how can we apply this to our development shop? Cause I think this would work given, you know, what we're trying to do here. So what they recommend in that book and what nonprofits who have adopted this model have done is they just talk with their development staff and find out what they like doing. Cause what you'll find is you usually have someone who's really good at finding new donors and that's what they like doing. They like that challenge of, you know, setting up the meetings and finding that you have people who are really good at getting the donors to say yes and give donations. You know, that's that closer role. And then you have people who are great at the relationship side of the um, equation, but are not good at closing. So those people make good cultivators. And we found some like, I wouldn't say like personality traits, because I think that's a little too box fitting. But like we found some things people tend to do like good cultivators are people who tend to give really great gifts. So you know, like at Christmas time, like you, we all have that like friend or aunt or somebody who gives like these really meaningful gifts, and you've given like a gift card. And you're like, oh crap, <laughs> and then they remembered some meeting they had, you know, something you'd mentioned a year and a half ago, and they got you something meaningful around that. Like people like that are the people you want to be cultivated. Just they really connect with people, they notice details, and then they figure out how to act in in a meaningful way and incorporate that you know, just establishing that deeper relationship. Um, You know, this is a little more, I would say less, you know, still early, but we find with people who are good at connecting, they usually have some sort of sales prospecting background. Like the person who works for my brother's company, she sold Yellow Pages ads for a long time. And so she's used to that prospecting and she's really talented. The other thing we found with some people in that role, they tend to like to do sports and or like activities that you have to kind of chip away at for a long period of time, like run marathons where you spend tons of time training for this one event, because that's really what they're doing. Like you think about trying to find a six or seven figure donor, you might have to spend a year and a half working that lead, passing the gatekeepers, getting to know the executive assistant, you know, getting on the calendar, getting rescheduled, all of those steps. So you have to be really able to think about this as a long-term game. Um, and that's the role that takes the longest to like get the pipeline filled and to see results. But your results, like an end of, you know, you have two or three new like massive donors. I think that's a great result on one person's time, you know, having an employee who focuses on that. Yeah. Have you seen anything so far in the work that you've done with organizations that have made this change related to how this change improves employee retention? Employee retention. That's a good question. And I haven't looked at those numbers directly, so I couldn't, like, I'm going to speculate here, so I don't know for sure. We have seen with, like, my brother's organization, I know that one specifically, people really like it because no one likes to do things they're not good at. 
Yeah, I was going to say, it feels like, you know, we, we always talk about this, you know, sort of 12 to 18 month turnover cycle in our sector, right? Particularly mm-hmm. for fundraisers. And it seems like putting people into a role where they feel like it's more designed for them and where they feel like they're using their natural skills and tendencies seems like it would make it a lot easier for people to say, yeah, I'm going to stick around here because I like the work I'm doing. Right. Well, and like, even like you think about if you're really good at the relational side and really good at cultivating the donor, but then you go meet and you can't close the deal. Like how demoralizing is that? Like you find, like you have this really, what you feel is this great relationship and then you're meeting with new prospects and getting rejected. Yeah. You know, like it doesn't add to like a good feeling. And on the flip side, if you're really good at closing deals and you're bad at follow through, you have all this guilt associated with, you know, you have business cards that you haven't responded to. <laughs> Some executive assistants emailed you back about setting up a meeting and you're three days behind. If only you were more disciplined, you'd be able to answer those emails on the plane, you know, at nine o'clock at night when you're tired after a long day of, you know, pitching donors. I, I can, I speak from experience when I say I have a, a list of emails from people on my team saying, Hey, you're supposed to do this. And for me, you know, I, I, I love to pitch and, and, and close business and all the other stuff. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it, it'll come back to me if it's that important. Otherwise, right. somebody else will figure out how to do it, right? So I, I totally get that piece and it makes a ton of sense. So uh, I know we have just a few minutes left, but I, I'm curious if you could take a moment to tell us a success story or two about the, the work that some of the clients you've worked with have been able to achieve coming out of the learnings from, from your seminars and training um, so that our listeners can get an understanding for just the kind of impact that this can make. Sure. So we've had just some tremendous success stories. Um, one of the things we do with our training is we provide this uh, 100% 100-day money-back guarantee on a mm-hmm. live training. And we do that because if you're going to take money from a nonprofit, it better work. Like that's always been, we want to have as much skin in the game as you do. We've never had anyone who's taken our online stuff or in-person workshop ever asked for a refund. But like the stories themselves are really incredible. We had a lady who started a, a brand new startup in the education space and she had never asked for money before. Did her first meeting. We did pitch coaching with her, working through her pitch. And uh, the morning of her pitch, she actually called me up. She's like, can I go through it one more time with you? And I was like, yeah, sure. Like, I'm, I'll be at my office in a couple minutes. And I didn't realize at the time that this was her very first pitch she'd ever made. Ever? She's been, yeah, ever. She's a successful <laughs> entrepreneur, then started this business uh, or this nonprofit in the education space. And she made her pitch. The donor said yes to $50,000 in <laughs> our very first meeting. Um, we've had other organizations where the CEO, you know, has led the organization for a decade, has a good pitch, has, starts having a bigger vision for where their organization can go because he spent time crafting a pitch and really thinking about it. And this was a nonprofit in Kansas, and he got a donor to give a seven-figure donation for the first time in that organization. And I think they were like $800,000 organization. So like just oh. massive donation. Um, and that later when they announced the donation, because they named something after the donor, um, another donor came and gave or set up from that uh, response a $250,000 donation. Um, and we've had donors who, you know, they move up, double their gift. We've had organizations give, you know, where they've gotten $25,000 first gifts. Um, one of the tactics we teach, um, telling lots of stuff from the workshop, but uh, I think it's really helpful is when you're meeting with a new donor and you want to, you're not sure how much money to ask for, one of the things to do is when you're closing is to give a range, right? So like say I'm meeting with you, Andrew, and I think you could give maybe $5,000, but I'm not sure. So what I would do is I'd meet with you. When I get to my ask, I'd say our nonprofit is funded by 20 key individuals who give between $5,000 and more than $100,000, but to accomplish this great work that we've just talked about, we need to add five more. I'd like you to be part of that group. Hmm. So what I did is I didn't box you into an amount, you know, 5,000. What I thought your minimum was, I put it at the bottom. And it's all true. You don't want to lie or anything. Sure. You have to be true to these numbers. But I also give you this big range, like showing you have lots of big donors investing lots of money. 
and we've had people use that technique alone, raise tens, 15,000 of dollars. We actually had someone at our February class right before all the lockdowns happen. They gave their pitch to one of their junior staff. The CEO wrote it, did it. He's like, go give this pitch on your next meeting. So the kid memorized it and we're not kid. He's in his twenties. Um, I mean, <laughs> but they, you know, he's a, develop, a junior. Yeah. Yeah. And he got a six figure commitment by doing huh. the range. That's awesome. So it's just one of these like crazy things where we tend, sometimes we undercut what people are willing to give when they get excited about the great work you're doing. And they really want to partner with you on just accomplishing this big goal you're setting out to do with your nonprofit. Well, it's really interesting. So two thoughts on this. First of all, you know, from, I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years and I, I can remember in all the trainings I've been in, all the people who have kind of mentored me along the way, it's always been put a specific number on the table, right? I, I love the idea of this range. When you first said to me the range, I was expecting you to say something like 5,000 to 10,000, but there is a, there is a whole lot of daylight between 5,000 and a hundred thousand. Right. And that, I mean, you're right. Like if, if someone is so moved by what you're doing, they realize, oh yeah, I could do any number in there. Right. Right. Yeah. If they have the capacity, right. You don't want to sure. set the range too high, but some people would say, you know, we're 20,000 to more than a million, <laughs> which is a giant range. But you're also giving them like, they're smart people. They know what they have capacity for. Why not trust them to come in where they feel comfortable? Yeah, no, that's a great point. And we don't recommend doing that with people you're renewing. Like you should ask a specific number for that because you don't, that seems weird. Sure. You give 25,000 a year to me, Andrew. And then I come in and say, we're, you know, this giant range. You're like, yeah, I'll give you 25,000. I'll give you 26, you know, or something, <laughs> you know, it just seems weird. But or here's say, 24 for being annoying. Yes. Right. But you could say 30, right? That's why I'm asking for 30 this year. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, that's great. Hey, Trevor, I appreciate you being here. Uh, this has been a really insightful conversation. Really enjoyed it. For folks that are listening, if, if they want to get your training or connect with you and learn more, what's the best way for people to reach you? Sure. They can visit our website at sevenfigurefundraising.com. That's the number seven, sevenfigurefundraising.com. And if they want to get a template of this, the COVID pitch, the return pitch we talked about today, if they go to sevenfigurefundraising.com slash return, they can download that template and use it themselves. We have a walkthrough video that goes with it so they can just try it out for themselves. Awesome. And I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes as well. Thanks again for being here, man. This was fun. Great. It was great doing this, Andrew. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, brought to you exclusively by Newport One. Newport One can make a difference in your fundraising so that you can change the world. You can always reach us at podcast at newportone.com. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.